we need to be more rigorously focused on tools and approaches that are peer-reviewed, and, and these things are, on best practices for self-care for healthcare providers. Welcome back to the Faculty Factory Podcast. I'm Kim Skorupski, and I'm looking at Dr. Dan Barnett, a frequent flyer now, number two visit. Hi, Dan. How are you? Very well. How are you? Good, good, good. So Dr. Barnett was here, episode number 173. You're going to want to slide back on and check that out because Dan really got us thinking about some really cool things. We talked about high dread environments. We talked about perception of risk. It equals the sum of the actual risk plus the dread or outrage. We talked about blue sky days. We talked about surge capacity threat. Super, super cool stuff all around emergency preparedness. Dr. Barnett is an associate professor here at the Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. He's an MD, MPH. And it was a really, really cool talk. After we had our conversation, I said, damn, we got to get you back because there's so many really compelling thoughts that are a little bit outside of the field of traditional field of faculty affairs and faculty development. And um, so I love the way he was kind of weaving in the the workforce issues and um, willingness to respond and all these kind of psychological affective components of our work. And so... Dr. Barnett is back here today to talk about, you know, have another conversation around workforce preparedness, um, the past pandemic, future pandemics, fatigue, how do we prepare as leaders in faculty affairs and faculty development, and as faculty members, how do we prepare ourselves, our teams, our institutions, hiring people, keeping people, equipping people to do our best. So, Dan, thanks again for being here, and I'm going to zip my lip and let you show us and bring the, bring the wisdom. Well, thank you, Kim, and thanks for having me back again. I appreciate it. Uh, to your point, uh, these are very challenging times for uh, the healthcare workforce in many ways, uh, but not least of which is the psychosocial aspects, uh, as we are now at the time of this recording in our two-plus year of COVID-19. Uh, and these issues that we talked about last time and are, are segueing to today are, are really, uh, frankly, ever more salient as it seems by the day. And by that, I mean, um, there are so many relevant issues regarding concerns about workforce, healthcare workforce attrition, burnout, terms like uh, compassion fatigue, which is a, a, a real phenomenon uh, in which uh, it is tiring to be in a caring profession. And I'm not saying that in a cynical way. It is emotionally tiring. You, this is heroic work. This is uh, the kind of work that is emotionally draining to, to, to really have this level of, of emotional investment in one's patients um, day in and day out uh, amidst a very trying time. So all of this also ties into care for the caregivers as we look ahead to current and future challenges that uh, face the healthcare workforce. Yeah. Dan, you know, you're, you're so right. And this is so important as we were chatting and many institutions are, you know, as you mentioned, there's this, you know, there's this life cycle that we learned about in the pandemic. And now we're kind of at the just complete and utter fatigue and exhaustion 
And then a little bit of, it's hard to like go back to normal because we can't go back. And then there's this kind of anxiety of, well, what is the future? And all these, as you talked about, geopolitical situations happening, what's the next thing that's going to slam us in the face? How do we manage to balance the fact that we have this heart and our clinician investigators have the this tremendous heart for service and and science and helping curing treating disease diseases and diagnosing and prevention and so trying to do that serve others while also trying to build a career which involves focusing inward on myself so when i talk every day and coach faculty members every day they're just in the corner up against the wall where so depleted, so, you know, as you said, the compassion fatigue, there's no, almost no, there's no space, no resources, no time, no energy left to dedicate to my science. Every time I say, well, how's your science doing? There's just science, my science. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Between midnight and 4am, I guess is the time that I could do my science. Mm -hmm. If I weren't a human being and needed to get a little bit of sleep and restoration So how, you know, how do we, I hope, you know, as as you, you know, share what you do in in your field, that there's going to be some, something you could, you know, teach us to how do we walk that line? How do we do what our gifts and talents are put us on earth to do to serve, but also do our science and do our research and do our papers and do our grants and build our research teams and, and think deeply about problems versus always going in emergency mode. Uh, exactly right on on all points, Kim, that you just mentioned. Um, I I think that um, on a very concrete level, employee assistance programs have never been more important uh, in in recent memory. Yeah. Um, when we think about the role of of workforce wellness, you know, it, it is not just um, you know uh, exercise and diet. It is the psychosocial. Now, those are important. Please don't get me wrong, right. but, but uh, when we think about workforce wellness, we think we need to think holistically about um, the, the toll that this pandemic and frankly, current uh, and emergent threats, including future pandemics, this is not the last pandemic I, I fear that we're going to see in our lifetimes, um, that the, the emotional toll that these events are, are taking on frontline health providers and academics, and everyone else in the um, sphere of um, healthcare and public health. Uh, And so on a very practical level, I think one of the key issues is to, uh, in terms of identifying lessons learned and um, to sort of use a a phrase uh, that that we've heard build back better, is to uh, revisit and uh, reinforce employee assistance programs. Uh, and that's being done in many instances. I'm not suggesting that it's not, but it, I think it needs to be even more universally done so that we achieve things like um, addressing work-life balance considerations, um, the uh, issues of burnout um, that uh, frontline providers have experienced, um, the issues of um, uh, career planning and how uh, COVID-19 and ongoing threats affect 
sort of the bandwidth of people to focus on their careers while they're also focusing on childcare and other family related considerations. These are not um, sort of isolated considerations. We can't think in terms of one lane of family and one lane of work, they're all interlinked. Mm -hmm. And so I think one of the key insights from COVID-19 and moving forward if there is a, not to use silver lining, but I'm trying to think of the most apt phrase, is it provides a sort of a natural experimental window for us to understand gaps in employee assistance and what we can do to shore up those gaps moving forward so that we can um, avoid, frankly, um, attrition uh, or further attrition of our frontline healthcare workforce. Dan, can you um, educate us a little bit about employee assistance programs? And you mentioned, you know, it's not just diet and and um, exercise. So I think a lot of us may, like me, right away when you we say employee assistance programs, I think of um, at Hopkins, you know, we've got employee discount things for going to the Baltimore Zoo, yeah. the, the planetarium, the aquarium, and I'm thinking of um, yeah, exercise, go to the gym or these online classes that were offered us when the pandemic broke out. And yeah, I'm thinking of the farmer's markets. And so that's the traditional stuff I'm thinking about. And wh- what else am I forgetting about, you know, daycare and, and care for older family members and resources that are available at the state level, the, the government, you know, the big level. What, Define employee assistance programs for us. And then what are you thinking in terms of gaps and next level, leveling up these employee assistance programs? Sure. Great question, uh, as always, Kim. So um, by this, I mean, by employee assistance programs, I'm talking in this context, including mental health resources for healthcare workers and other uh, frontline responders. And um, when we think of employee assistance programs, uh, historically, those allow for referral to mental health services, uh, confidential, of course, uh, to allow people to uh, continue to um, literally function in their jobs. I think um, when we, in in the context of of COVID-19 and based on lessons learned, we need to think of it uh, employee assistance programs, and, and there are many that include what I'm about to say, but more consistently, holistically, in terms of family-related considerations, childcare, and how these all intersect, and and think of these uh, employee assistance programs as uh, truly longitudinal in nature. It's not like a one-off um, session. Maybe for some people, a one a single session of, with a counselor may 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 suffice. But, but the, the, the psychological trauma, and there's a lot of research that still needs to be done on this. COVID-19 at the time of this recording is still very much happening, and we are still learning a tremendous amount about it. So I don't want to um, speak to research that has not yet been sort of cemented. But having said that, I think it's safe to anticipate that the, um, the, the, the even uh, from COVID-19 itself, things like post-traumatic stress among providers and all of these longitudinal health impacts are accordingly going to require longitudinal uh, work with employee assistance programs and resources for employee assistance programs to um, allow for uh, a form of psychological recovery and going back to the term build back better. Um, we, we think of that often in terms of infrastructure, but we also can think of it in terms of human resources. And I think yeah. that that confluence is a very important um, sort of synergy of ideas. 
Wow, that's so important. Psychological recovery, Dan, that, that's so important. And I think that we're seeing evidence of this in terms of like the rampant crime. And we don't want to go off on this tangent necessarily, but around the country of gun violence that I'm hearing, you know, we're all hearing murmurings of this. We're all having this trauma and not understanding how to deal with um, anger and resolving conflict. and. I think a lot of we've seen some movement forward. I see on television commercials and pop culture references that, that the stigma that used to be and still is associated with saying, I have depression, I have anxiety, I'm really struggling here, that we're making some inroads to um, normalizing these experiences. But gosh, you know, in terms of when you said lessons learned, if this isn't an opportunity to just naturally see that this is the time and place to just blow the, you know, the doors open and do an assessment of where are we with mental health, not necessarily like waiting for people to reach out to us saying, you know, Hey, I'm having some problems here, Mm -hmm. which may be a little bit too late, but helping, but being pro if employee assistance programs and employers and faculty affairs and offices of well-being may be a little bit proactive Mm-hmm. In trying helping people to say, you know, are you feeling this? Does this sound, you know, familiar to you? Does this pattern of thinking or you're not alone? These may be symptoms of whatever, whatever. So education, talking about it, normalizing it, not making it hush hush. I think that would go um, would be a wonderful way to enhance or fill in some of these gaps. So I think you're you're right on, Dan. I'm seeing a lot of this residual or full out PTSD, the fact that you don't know what it is. They're just like, you know, they don't, they don't put it, that name on it, but mm-hmm. you see that that's what it, I can see. What it, I'm not a clinician, but I, I see, it sounds like that's what it is. Yes. And I, I think also to piggyback on that and um, to echo um, a colleague who's been a guest on your, on your podcast, uh, Dr. George Everly. I think one of the things I, I, I think is important uh, if, if I had a sort of a wish, if you will, um, is universal training on psychological first aid for all health workers. And um, the reason for that is that, um, and not to reiterate what Dr. Everly um, has discussed in any way, but just to sort of amplify on it, psychological first aid is akin to basic CPR for mental health. And um, it is an explicitly designed for people who are not psychologists and not psychiatrists by training. And it'll, it includes a variety of facets that are beyond the scope of our discussion necessarily, but um, include things like um, recognizing signs and, uh, and symptoms of psychological distress in colleagues, um, referring those colleagues, going back to employee assistance programs, to the right resources, um, uh, active listening, all of these kinds of considerations that are, are so critical. And frankly, we do not have in the U.S. and internationally um, a, sufficient, um, a sufficient, sufficiently large cadre of psychologists or psychiatrists to provide the kinds of scale of services that one can anticipate will be needed for health providers in the short and longer term aftermath of COVID-19 and other disasters. So psychological first aid can be in some way a, um, a, 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 
to help, it can be a mode of shoring up those limited resources and to uh, basically allow peer-based uh, intervention among healthcare workers that can be critical uh, as we think about the magnitude of the psychological aftermath of COVID-19 and other events. Gosh, Dan, this is such important um, reminder for all of us. And I'm, whenever, you know, I talk to people like you so smart and so like on the, the pulse of like what's happening at the moment, my mind starts kind of spinning of like, we have to do something on this, about this, we all hands on deck. And I kind of get really um, amped up about it. And it's, as you were talking, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, you know, we got to pivot to this. This is going to take a lot of resources. We don't have this kind of money. Budgets are tight. We're, we can't even hire people. We can't keep people. Uh, what are we going to do? And right. then I'm thinking, we don't have these things that we think um, require a lot of um, investment. Yes, and maybe not so much. And I'm recalling at my, my gym where I work out, I was filling up my water bottle. I'm like, what is this stupid thing on the wall here? And it was kind of reminded me of some, you know, grade school art project, but all over the walls of the gym, not all over the walls, but strategically around the walls of my gym are good old fashioned pieces of construction paper, eight and a half by 11 construction paper folded in half the long way. And the, and it's taped to the wall, like a flip up question in the front of the construction paper was a question, you know, and it said, why do, what do chickens work on at the gym? What do chickens work on at the gym? And I'm filling my water bottle and I'm reading this. I'm like, are you kidding me? What is this nonsense? And I, and you flip up the thing and it says they're pecs. Get it? <laughs> and I was like, this is so corny. And yet, as I walked away, I was kind of smiling. And then I noticed they're all around the gym. And I thought, well, this is dumb. What's the point of this? But don't you know, as I'm observing, I'm on the treadmill and I'm looking, people are flipping these things up and kind of snickering and, and mm -hmm. they're engaging with a piece of construction paper. And Dan, as you're just now talking, I'm thinking, well, couldn't we straw poll this kind of mental health situation of in the halls of the hospital, in the clinics, in our labs, in our offices? Do, are you having trouble sleeping lately? flip up, it may not be caffeine, you may be stressed. <laughs> or, you know, I mean, this is not um, complicated. You don't have to build an app. And I'm thinking, couldn't we have like little stickers or whiteboards or where are you today on the scale of one to 10? And people could just walk by and move a magnet, you know, on burnout. I'm at the top of the thermometer, I'm down here. And then you can, as you're right. walking by, you get a sense of the pulse of where are we on our energy level? How happy are you today? How sad are you today? But these kind of interactive ways of gauging the pulse of a group, it doesn't have to be high tech, right? Mm -hmm. now I'm just I, up. I, no, I, I think that's exactly right. I think also one of the dual benefits of, of, it, of what you're describing, Kim, is it, it helps to destigmatize these kinds of considerations. If you have, to, to your excellent example, um, placards on the wall and things like that. By definition, you are destigmatizing these things that many people may be, uh, although mental health is thankfully less stigmatized than it used to be, we're still not where we need to be. And uh, that is no less true of provider mental health in terms of being feeling stigmatized, uh, having a stigma if they indicate that they need help and so on. Right. 
So I think the, the uh, sort of a dual tacit benefit of such an approach, and I, lo- I love the description of, of what, you, what you mentioned here, is to destigmatize. Right. Carrie, because you said, you know, Dr. Barnett, caring for the caregivers, I think the time is right for this, because this meaning a boost of employee assistance programs, offices of well-being, faculty affairs to because I because everybody knows frontline workers. I mean, we all the whole world, we're all about banging pots and pans and thank you, frontline workers, and thank you. So everyone knows that they are fatigued. Everyone knows that they literally put their life on the lines every day and sacrifice. sacrifice. So people know that. Therefore, people would anticipate, well, for crying out loud, you just ran a marathon, have a glass of water and a juice box. I mean, people know you must be tired. So if any time is right, it seems to me this is to be the perfect time to say, all right, phew, you done good. Let's fix, let's bring everybody in for a tune-up. You need, let's right. let's help you out. Let's let's outfit you with some new resources and a, and a reboost and let's make sure everything's okay. Let's check all the pieces and parts. How you doing? And as you said, Dan, not a one-off, but let's check in. Are we building? Are we re-energizing, you know? Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I, I think, you know, public health also has a role to play. Um, uh, for example, um, in terms of uh, mental health surveillance. Uh, so, for example, in the aftermath of the September 11, 2001 attacks on the World Trade Center and in, in, uh, in the Pentagon and in Pennsylvania, um, and in other examples, uh, CDC has what's called the Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance System. And I, I'm a big proponent of um, longitudinal mental health surveillance. Um, and that can capture things uh, such as substance misuse, um, and all other kinds of manifestations that can, uh, frankly, erode, in this case, in the context of our discussion, the capacity of the healthcare workforce to function effectively in the aftermath, of, even during and in the aftermath of COVID-19 and other events. Wow, Dan, brilliant. I this, this is so interesting that you mentioned the BRFSS because that was my first job up in Michigan, the Michigan Public Health Institute. I was a data analyst for the BRFSS and put out the annual reports for the state of Michigan. And you're right, I completely forgot about that being done on a statewide level, but wow, um, extracting or replicating that surveillance work in a faculty population. I mean, that's that's what you're saying, that, that, Exactly. And I guess I'm I am Matt now. I wish I had um now I'm gonna have to reach out to our chief wellness officer, Dr. Lee Doherty Bittison. Is there such a thing? There's gotta be something that we do faculty satisfaction. I know a lot of my you know peers we do faculty satisfaction surveys, for example, the school of medicine, every other year we do one. And then we collect the data and then use the next years to kind of come up with strategies and initiatives to address faculty issues. But mm-hmm. It's more, it's a local, it's an institution instrument. It's not survey, you know, surveilling mental health, but I'm wondering if well-being and all that burnout in academic medicine, there's, I know there is. Now I'm thinking there's, I know there's some national effort to look at burnout, but it's not really what you're talking about. It's more, it's, it's, I think it is targeted to burnout versus let's not wait till people are burning out. Let's kind of address this upstream more and do mental health at, at large. So I, I think that's really, really smart idea, Dan. 
Obviously, every institution is different, and I'm not suggesting that there be a one-size-fits-all approach to this. But I do think the extent that this can be harmonized with federal efforts, uh, for for like such as BRFSS or other related kinds of surveillance activities, can really help to monitor not just the short-term impact and 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 um, uh, considerations for healthcare workers, but the longer term, because the, the you know this is going to be a form of silent injury, I hate to say, uh, in terms of mental health, not just acutely, but long-term post-COVID-19. Mm. And as we face other threats in real time, I mean, not to not to be cavalier in terms of, but the idea of walking and chewing gum is, unfortunately, I, that's the best metaphor I can think of because we it's not like disasters are, take a break for us. Uh, and we have to be able to uh, sort of um, deal with uh, post-event psychological impacts from one event while also responding to current and future threats. So it's it's sort of like a, it's like drinking water out of a fire hose in many ways, but that requires longitudinal uh, support and assessment and, and surveillance in my, in my view. To me, the most um, obvious corollary to what's happening in in academic workforce and you you mentioned you know when you said heroes and the emotional toll and PTSD of course I go to I'm sure many of us go to military and so we have all of our you know obviously there's a whole fields fields and branches of the military that are heroes literally sacrificing their lives and so the ones who come back, um, what can we learn about, as you said, intersections? And they, I like that, that, that picture of not these parallel tracks, but how lot, everything intersects. Anything you can glean, I know I'm kind of throwing you know, this kind of curveball to you, but what kind of nuggets can we take from that um, institution of defense and how we can maybe parlay some of that um, treatment or resourcing to help our academic career, faculty, clinician, investigators be resilient, but not, I don't want to put it on them because, you know, we always kind of struggle, walk this fine line of saying, just eat better and take yoga and meditate and you'll be fine. Coupled with the institution's commitment to, you know, the, the person the soldier, you know, the Marine can do whatever she or he can do individually. But if you're in an environment that's not supporting your health and your well-being and your wellness, uh, all's for naught. So can you think of anything um, that we can learn from that, you know, part of life? Uh, it's a wonderful question, um, uh, Kim. And I I'm a big believer in learning from different institutional cohorts in terms of identifying insights. Now, with that, there is a caveat. With military, there is a compulsory aspect of this, uh, where, which is not true in the civilian sector. So I say that with a, a cordial caveat. Having said that, um, some of the greatest innovations in terms of mental health uh, and um, other psychosocial aspects come from the military. And I think to the extent that we can adapt and apply insights current and future from military-based research toward the civilian sector, a specific focus on the 
uh, healthcare civilian sector, healthcare provider civilian sector, I think that's all the better. And by the way, I think it's also vice versa. I think that the military can learn from civilian insights too. Yeah. Which may seem counterintuitive because, you know, why, since the military, you know, it, there's a, um, it seems like there's a sort of a resilience that's baked in. Well, um, actually, uh, there there has been, as you may have likely seen, uh, uh, resistance among many military personnel to get COVID vaccinated. And so it is not um, sort of that military uh, uh, cannot benefit from um, bi-directional insights from the civilian sector as well. Yeah, you're, you know, that's another good point. I'm, I tend to, I tend to always, I think many of us do romanticize the grass is greener. You know, that industry, they really know what's going on in here. If we would just follow corporate America, if we could, if we right. faculty development could just do training like Amazon does, they know everything I want and need and get it to sure. me in two minutes. Why can't all y'all do it? So right. I tend to think, well, you know, yeah, the VA Health Services Research and Development Field Program, which I worked as in my postdoc at University of Michigan, the Veterans Administration has a great, you know, reputation. And there's, I feel like, well, they must know the answers, you know, and they're probably thinking, you know, you, you idiot, you know, of course, we've been doing this for, you know, hundreds of years, um, it's about time. But then again, somebody could say, no, I mean, we're all like you're saying, you're pointing out, Dan, that um, every industry has its strengths and overlooking over the fence saying, oh, they must have it all figured out. They're probably looking at us going, wow, they got it figured out. Um, so you're right. I, I do. And I do appreciate thinking about things in a different culture, a different context. We have I can I love learning from other fields and how they apply principles and what they do and seeing if we can all pick, you know, cherry pick the best nuggets and, and figure this out, knowing that there's no aha answer. I know that. I mean, I'm not that naive. But, but you're exactly right. And, and just one related note, I think that's really critical. I, and it's another aspirational item from me, uh, from COVID-19. Um, uh, the concept of what's called an after action report where you identify what went well, what did not go well. Um, historically, in disasters, focuses, or not, I don't want to say writ large completely, but historically has primarily focused on procedures and protocols and things like that. And I, one of the things that I hope emerges from COVID-19 is that after action reports include psychosocial lessons learned not just operational lessons learned, not just throughput considerations for clinics, not just how do we manage surge capacity from a, a sort of a mechanical sense. Those are critical issues, but I think we need to also include the psychosocial insights um, as part of after action reporting. And I think um, COVID-19 has really um, sort of um, highlighted the critical relevance of the psychosocial element for identifying lessons learned for continuous quality improvement in health services. All right, Dan, can you leave us with maybe one, two, or more as individual human beings listening to this episode right now, psychosocial awareness and sensitivity, what can we, one person do today to Changes to improve this, this meaning the psychosocial climate, culture, awareness. 
what's one thing we can all do? At least one. You got maybe I don't know. Sure. If <laughs> Absolutely no. Um, one is to um, take a psychological first aid training. Psychological first aid training. And um, I, I'm, uh, you know, there are resources out there um, that um, uh, I think are, are. It speaks to the earlier comment. I, I truly believe that everyone in healthcare and frontline uh, response systems. Uh, it's just a personal view, but I, but but there's evidence behind it. Needs to and can benefit from training, getting trained in psychological first aid, uh, because we we need that kind of bolstering of our very limited. Uh, mental health system in terms of our resources. So that would be item, the first item. Got it. I would. And can, can I hold you there? Is it, is it just kind of broad overview, just going to give us a big quick picture. Is it like um, ABC's airway breathing circulation? Cause I know I'm, I am hearkening back to my CPR training. Is it something like you could literally take a class and it's learning the one, two, threes, the ABC's, the blah, blah, blah. Is there some kind of highlights you can give us? Like, what would I learn in psychological first aid training course? Right. So there are various versions of it. Um, and there's actually a Johns Hopkins, what's called the RAPID, R-A-P-I-D, which I will uh, uh, not uh, belabor the, the acronym, but there is a Johns Hopkins, uh, it's called RAPID version of psychological first aid. There are other variations of psychological first aid. But the ideas behind them, behind these principles, include everything from active listening to um, being able to uh, um, identify signs and symptoms that may be beyond one's uh, ability to address through um, active listening itself and may require uh, referral to someone with more expertise. But the nice thing about the psychological first aid is it can serve sort of as a bulwark against the um, uh, perhaps um, overwhelming of the limited public or mental health, formal trained mental health service provider system that we have. Um, so uh, that would be one aspect. Another aspect of psychological first aid relates to self-care. And I think we need to, uh, just to, to your qu excellent question, Kim, we need to uh, be more rigorously focused on tools and approaches that are peer-reviewed, and, and these things are, on best practices for self-care for healthcare providers. Um, in disasters, historically, what, what do we have? We have donuts and coffee. <laughs> um, so caffeine and sugar. And so while that may seem, you know, pejorative, and I don't mean to make it sound that way, um, that is, those are the two worst things that one can have um, in one system in terms of... Um, being able to function effectively. So we need to think about nutrition and rest and all of those kinds of considerations in the, in the field of disaster research and even um, physiological research and um, mental health research and bring those to bear to, to create an improved, very practical approach to self-care for healthcare providers and other frontline workers. Love it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. What, what you I cut you off when you said in another thing, in addition to psychological first aid training, something else we can all do. Yeah, no. Um, I, uh, so I think also um, self-awareness of, of mental health um, uh, sort of uh, symptoms and signs that one may be experiencing. I think often there is a, a feeling that that's a sign of weakness to recognize it, or we just plow ahead but I think um, uh, along with 
psychological first aid training, a greater self-awareness of signs and symptoms in oneself um, that may portend uh, problems that could um, snowball. And so I think um, learning about um, signs and symptoms of burnout, learning about signs and symptoms of compassion fatigue, all these things that we've talked about should be frankly part of, um, in my view, um, healthcare system-wide training curriculum. Uh, this is, as they say, a teachable moment uh, as we think about COVID-19 and what we are learning from in real time. And I think, you know, uh, the time is now to really think actively about how we um, do trainings to help healthcare workers recognize what burnout looks like, recognize what PTSD looks like so that they can be more self-aware. And to your earlier point, the third thing I would say is to destigmatize all of this through the kinds of excellent example that you gave of having, um, you know, visual placards and things like that. Uh, we, we at Hopkins Hospital, the, the amazing work of Peter Pronovost was reflected in, um, you know, the, the, the steps of, if you, in, uh, that one would take, for example, um, for hand washing and for hand hygiene, as, as I recall, having seen it uh, on the walls at Hopkins Hospital. So Hopkins Hospital, among others, is, has been at the vanguard of that kind of visual display as a way of behavior change or awareness. Yeah. And I think that uh, I'm not exclusively praising Hopkins Hospital. There are many hospitals that do this, but I think that kind of model can and should be replicated in the context we're describing here. Great, Dan. Oh, I love all this. I'm so like excited and I really want to go out and, and, and do stuff and make this happen. And um, you really inspired me to dig into this and yeah, do, do what I can personally. And I think what I can do is just start incorporating or, or weaving in this recognition in all the work I do in faculty development. For years now, I've started all my sessions with a, hey, let's take a pause and celebrate who has given birth to a human, a paper, a grant application. You know, these things are very, you know, uh, babies and grants and papers take a long time to grow. And so I'll, right. uh, who, who got promoted? So I'd start with celebrations to, remember that we honor and appreciate the good things we're doing in, in struggling and challenging times. But now you're also making me think that we need to think about weaving in the flip side of that, a before a session, maybe these polls that you could do in, you know, in Zoom and in Qualtrics of, and on your cell phones, uh, on a scale of one to 10, you know, how burnt out are you feeling right now? Right. Maybe it's not even on the session we're going to do today, but just before you start a faculty meeting or a lab meeting, it's all anonymous. Where are we? Where are we as a group? And have mm -hmm. people go, phew, I'm glad we're lower than we were last week or last month, or, oh my gosh, uh, the pot is boiling. You know, this right. is important canary coal mine kind of situation. So you're really inspiring me to think of ways that instead of waiting for an office of or a center for or a team of people to, we individually, leader of one, I can do it for myself. All right, Kim, what you're feeling is tense. Why are you feeling so tense? Why are you feeling so you know, angry? Or then sharing with people, I'm feeling anxious. I'm feeling nervous. I'm feeling sad. And modeling that, but also then what can I do with my groups uh, that doesn't require 
uh, a huge investment of, again, equipment, supplies, questionnaires, just kind of asking people and listening. I love how you talked about the psychological first aid of active listening. So this is just so great. You got me all amped up. This was helpful. I was just say one other thing. Uh, it's a good news piece of uh, of uh, uh, comment is that there are um, some very well validated burnout scales that can yes. be incorporated. There's a Maslow Maslow burnout scale and others. Um, so we don't necessarily even have to reinvent the wheel yeah. Yeah. Uh, in terms of assessing these kinds of things. That's right. Absolutely. Well. Dr. Dan Barnett, see, I I knew this would be another good conversation, right? Everybody out there, if you want to reach out to Dan, you can email him at dbarnett, B-A-R-N-E-T, four, at jhu.edu. I'll say that again, D-B-A-R-N-E-T, four, at jhu.edu. Check out his episode number 173 uh, a a couple months ago, a few months ago. It was super cool. Another great conversation. And Dan, thank you so much again. You really are uh, inspiring. You're so smart. I love learning from you and applying these really important principles to faculty affairs and faculty development. So thank you for the work you're doing. And thank you for being on the podcast. Well, thanks very much, Kim. I appreciate it. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.